This podcast is brought to you by the Mountain West News Bureau with support from America Amplified, a community engagement journalism project. Hey, this is Nate Hedgie, and you're listening to Facing West. This bonus episode's all about fact-checking. See, I spent nearly a month bicycling hundreds of miles along the Continental Divide, speaking with folks in small towns and rural communities ahead of the 2020 election. My job was to listen, see if I could connect the dots between these places and uncover issues the media wasn't talking about. And we did that. But I also heard a few things over and over again that gave me pause. Facts that maybe weren't facts. So now that I'm back home in Missoula, Montana, I want to dig into a few of those. And help me out, I'm wrangling in my editor, Kate Concannon. Hey, Kate. Hey, Nate. Nice nice to be with you. So I guess we're talking about facts today, or more like false facts. So um, let's call them factoids, just for simplicity's sake. And we're going to focus on what we decided were the big three, right? They've been around for some time, but you were sort of bumping into them. On, on this ride. I also think we should note that um, these factoids have been checked before. There's lots of news outlets out there now fact-checking, especially in the last three years. You've got the Washington Post and its Pinocchio score and PolitiFact and Snopes.com, which has been around forever. Um, but because these big three are still floating around and because you ran into them on your trip, we thought they were worth revisiting and saying these things, that they're not true. So where should we start, do you think? Well, let's start with the phrase that I heard time and time again on this trip. Trump is a self-made millionaire, a businessman, not a politician. He saved the economy. Trump can't be bought. You know, uh, he's not a career politician. He's a businessman. He's a self-made millionaire. He's got his own money. He's not going to be anybody's puppet in there. And he's a self-made millionaire, you know, pretty much. And he's made it, multimillionaire, whatever he is. He, he knows what he's doing. So this idea that Trump's a businessman, not a politician, it was a mantra that Trump himself began in 2015 when he first announced his run for the presidency. He repeated it over and over and over again on the campaign trail. And it is true that he had no political background. But Kate, what about this idea that he's a self-made millionaire? Well, that one's pretty easy to dismiss as not true. I mean, we know that he inherited money from his dad. And following a 2018 investigation by the New York Times, it showed that he actually inherited about half a billion dollars from his father. So, so obviously, he didn't start from scratch. I think where things get tricky is, well, what did he do with that money that he inherited? Did he invest it wisely? And I think we can look to something like The Apprentice and the reality show, of course. And it's obvious that was a very good financial business decision. It's been very good for him financially. And it's also been good for his brand and the the whole Trump logo, which is an investment in itself. I think where things get more complicated, though, is when you start looking into some of the other investments he's made and um, those infamous tax returns, right? Right. Yeah. So obviously, you know, the New York Times had a big investigation this year that showed that he was deeply in debt. Uh, in trouble with his taxes. He owes a ton of taxes to the IRS. He's 
been audited. Um, and then you can look at all the bankruptcies that he's had in his past, you know, with some of his casinos and his hotels. Um, in that sense, he's he's really struggled as a as a as a businessman. So so pretty murky there, I'd say. Um, you know, the the factoids, the trio of factoids we heard at the beginning, though, um, good businessman, self-made millionaire. The third one, I think, is also pretty easy to dismiss as untrue is that he saved the economy, that the economy was languishing under the Obama administration when he took office. And if you actually look at the data, um, for example, if you look at growth, yes, under Obama's first term, it was slow to almost non-existent, but he did inherit the Great Recession that we were in the midst of. Uh, growth improved significantly in the second term. In fact, the average growth rate in the second term was a, was 2.5% uh, under Obama in his last three years. If you look at the first three years of the Trump administration, growth is around 2.6, so roughly the same. And that's not including 2020. Who knows? I think all bets are off if we include 2020 because we're still in the midst of a pandemic, so we don't know what's going to happen with growth, and things are looking pretty dire right now. Right, yeah. I mean, you just look at, you know, unemployment numbers, which brings us to the other thing, you know, that we kind of base judging an economy on, which is jobs. And so, again, ignoring 2020, um, and just looking at Obama's last three years versus Trump's first three years, slightly more jobs were actually added under Obama versus Trump. Now, Trump did add more manufacturing jobs and unemployment hit an all time low. But again, we're now in a recession because of the pandemic and that pandemic, not entirely Trump's fault. Many countries are struggling. Um, but our high unemployment continues in part because the country didn't control the virus in the same way that, let's say, Canada did just across the border. And Canada has actually been fairly successful, um, even with this current kind of fall surge. Um, it held up its economy by paying people who were furloughed $2,000 a month. Meanwhile, the U.S. is struggling to push through a second stimulus package as, as COVID numbers here surge. Let's move on, shall we, to, to the next factoid we were going to talk about. Um, it's something we've heard a fair bit from the president himself. Um, here he is during an interview on Fox News. We had somebody get on a plane from a certain city this weekend. And in the plane, it was almost completely loaded with, with thugs wearing these dark uniforms, black uniforms with gear and this and that. They're, they're on a plane. Where's the so there, the president's alluding to Antifa. And this is something I heard about two or three times on my ride. Concerns about Antifa or violent agitators. Here's Jesus Archuleta in Rollins, Wyoming. They're hired by these people that have all these big bucks going in there in cities to destroy them. Where did, where did you hear that? On the media. You see them. They catch them. You see them in the media. They go down. They bring them in on buses, you know. They bring him in on buses to come in and protest. You see him getting off the buses in some of the pictures, you know. I mean, a person's not even safe to go into town and uh, without somebody coming to tip your car over and break the windows. And then they wonder why they're, after they get hurt, they come and start crying and say, call the cops to, you know, after somebody run them over and they're protesting. Well, you know what? Pretty crazy. So, Nate, can you spell it out for us? Are these concerns valid? 
Well, Archuleta, the guy we just heard from, he's referring to a couple of rumors. The first one's that violent agitators are coming into protests by the busload. This rumor started soon after George Floyd was killed by police and nationwide protests uh, were sparked. Um, But it's been widely debunked by local law enforcement agencies and even by the FBI, uh, who said that Antifa is an ideology, not an organization. Uh, Still, those rumors have spread online, and they've even been spread by some elected officials, including up here in Montana. So it's like a a wildfire that's that's gotten out of control a little bit. Okay. And you you were also telling me along your ride that you were hearing from some folks who think Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group, right, and a part of this problem. Right. Yes. And they'll also, you know, say that it's a shadow organization for the billionaire George Soros, who's if you're not familiar with him, he's this kind of leftist uh, philanthropist. Uh, But there's no evidence that that's the case. You know, Black Lives Matter is a grassroots organization. Soros's nonprofit, the Open Society Foundation, it has donated to that group. But so have a lot of other organizations and even celebrities. So do you have any idea how all these rumors actually started and spread? Um. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the Antifa rumor was started by this fake Antifa Twitter account, which was ran by a white supremacist group, and then it grew its own legs on social media. And then the conspiracies about George Soros have been around forever. They've been exacerbated by QAnon um, and, and things like that lately. Okay, so we're on to our final factoid for today. It's, it's not exactly a fake fact. It's more confusion over an established fact that's pretty straightforward that you wouldn't expect confusion over. I, I think climate change is a big thing, and I don't know what's causing it. Maybe it's a cycle. Maybe we don't have enough information. Maybe we have all the information, and it is all of our cars and trucks. But I don't see an easy solution, but I do see it as a big problem right now. Yeah, it's climate change. Is it global warming? Yeah, I'm not ever going to say that it's global warming. Yeah, it looks like there's some things that's going on. But we've only been tracking this for how long? So so those two uh, exchanges there, that's something we hear a lot in the Mountain West, this confusion. Folks accepting that, yeah, something's happening. The, the climate is changing. I mean, it's hard in the Mountain West not to know that. I mean, we're just facing yet another unprecedented wildfire season, right? But this 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 sort of belief out there that we we don't really know why we don't know what's causing it when the scientific consensus is and has been for a long time. Yes, we actually do. Right. Yeah. We've been tracking human contribution to climate change for decades. And there's long been scientific consensus that we are the problem. Um, Burning fossil fuels, commercial livestock, deforestation, you name it. That's right. I, I, I think part of the problem is climate change science is complicated, yeah? And then what we've done here in the U.S. to a, to a large extent is we've thrown politics into it, which has sort of further exacerbated um, the confusion. And I say the United States. I mean, politics on this issue isn't unique to the United States, but we have certainly done it to a much greater extent. I mean, if you look in Western Europe, if you look at Canada, just across the border, yes, there's there's debate about what to do with it, do about it, but there's no debate that it's real and that we humans are the problem. And I think what we've seen here in our country is that it's become 
politicized, it seems, at every level. Um, Take the hearings uh, just recently for our new Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, Democratic Senator Kamala Harris asked, asked her whether she believed that climate change is happening and threatening our air and water, and this was her response. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Thank you, thank you, Judge Barrett. So we know, no, no, it's not political. It's, uh, again, scientific consensus. And it's sort of like what we've seen with the ongoing mask wars during this pandemic. There's global medical consensus that masks will prevent the spread of COVID, but it's become this political hot potato where in uh, sort of, um, communities that lean red, you're less likely to to wear masks. I know when you're on your ride, Nate, I think it was pretty early on, you called me and you said, okay, Kate, if I'm going to get COVID, it's going to be in this town. Right. Yeah. No, that was um, Rexburg, Idaho. I was at this grocery store and Rexburg is this kind of um, Mormon college town. And I went in to grab some food and nobody was wearing masks. Very few people were social distancing. And I noticed that, you know, on most of my trip, masks were political. You know, COVID was political. And, of course, when I went, it was during kind of a lull in the pandemic, uh, late summer, early fall. But now, as things get colder, we're seeing a big surge. And that's happening in Rexburg. Rexburg's seeing a huge uptick in cases. And I think that's emblematic of a problem that we're having right now, yeah? That uh, it's very difficult to get things done when everyone is operating on a different set of facts and some of those facts are just wrong yeah yeah and it's it's um it's it can be kind of confusing even when you're when you're riding through trying to to listening to that kind of stuff and and being a little be befuddled as to where people get this information from were you ever tempted i'm intrigued to know were you ever tempted when you heard some of this to say that's just wrong you know here's the truth yeah and i did that a couple of times with certain folks I, I spoke with, but we'd end up getting in this kind of, I don't know, like we just went around in circles over and over again in our conversation because people were operating on a different set of facts than than I was operating on. And I think that's what's feeding some of this political divide too that we see right now is that, you know, when you're operating on a completely different set of facts, um, you know, what I'm saying to you or what I believe to be true or what is true, you know, doesn't doesn't ring true uh, to you. And so it, it almost felt like um, defeatist to to get into these kind of conversa- conversations sometimes. You know, we've had a lot of conversations about this, right, Nate, both you and I with the rest of the Mountain West Bureau team and about we're living in this age when there's a lot of misinformation. It seems certainly in my experience, more misinformation than I've ever seen. We're also living in a time when there's less trust in journalists. So so what to you does it say about our role right now after you did this trip and you ran into these things? For me, it there was a couple of takeaways I had um, in terms of what our role is. Part of our role is to listen um, and to try to set up and say, like, this is, this is what's true. I also see it. there's a divide between kind of what people are seeing nationally and the kind of information they're getting at, getting about, you know, national topics, COVID, um, Trump, um, the protests, everything else like that, between what's actually happening at a local level. And um, people were much more informed and much more like realistic about what was happening in their own communities. 
um, which actually gave me a lot of a lot of faith. Um, it also made me really. Uh, I came home really hoping that local journalism can reinvent itself and become stronger because I think it's really, really necessary. And a lot of these places are news deserts now um, and they're losing that community source journalism. Um, and it also just, you know, as a public radio reporter who covers, you know, the entire region, it, it was just, it stressed the importance uh, of our role in helping people listen to each other and to lay out facts in clear, compelling ways so that maybe we can kind of make a little dent in, in this, these disinformation campaigns that are happening. Yeah, and you talk there about the news deserts and the role of local journalism at a time when, yeah, papers are closing. I mean, there's so many counties now either have no paper or only one paper. So our role, as you say, is is incredibly important. So talking about that, uh, what's next? Are you pining to be off on your bike again? Are you going to be coming to me and saying, Kate, what about going here? I am pining to be on my bike again, but now is not the time, right? Because we've you know, when I left, COVID cases were at a lull here in the more rural parts of the Mountain West, but we've since seen a big surge, um, especially here in October and November. Um, and it's just not a safe time to go out in the world on a bicycle or, or really um, in any kind of vehicle. So so at the moment, I want to, but I, I shouldn't because of the pandemic. Well, let's hope 2021 we'll be able to, to set out on another trip because it's been, I think, a really important project. Agreed. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, eventually things will cool off. But um, should we do the end credits? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Um, I'm Nate Hedgie with the Mountain West News Bureau. And I'm Kate Kincannon, Managing Editor of the Mountain West News Bureau. Our sound designer is Liza Yeager, artwork by Luke Anderson. The Mountain West News Bureau is a consortium of NPR member stations covering the region. Our partner stations include Wyoming Public Media, Boise State Public Radio in Idaho, KUNC in Colorado, KUNR in Nevada, KUNM in New Mexico, and the O'Connor Center for the Rocky Mountain West in Montana.